0: Hey, everyone. Before we start the show, a bit of news. So some of you may know of another podcast I host. It's called How I Built This, and it's a show about the world's greatest living entrepreneurs. Anyway, last year, after a year of doing live shows, we decided we wanted a deeper experience with our community. So we decided to launch a full day How I Built This summit. And it was so amazing and fun that we're doing it again this year. But this time, we're doing it over two days. It's happening October 22nd to 23rd in San Francisco with support from American Express. And this year, we are doubling down on our main stage speakers. You're gonna be able to hear from and probably even meet some of the greatest living founders and entrepreneurs in the world, including Sarah Blakely of Spanx, Stuart Butterfield of Slack, Kevin Systrom and Mike Krieger of Instagram, Tarek Farid of Edible Arrangements, David Neeleman of JetBlue, Troy Carter, who managed Lady Gaga, Marcia Kilgore of Bliss, Jen Rubio of Away, and many others, including special surprises. And on top of that, we'll have dozens of side sessions with experts and special guests on everything from the nuts and bolts of starting and scaling your business to ways of thinking in a more innovative and creative way. The food is great. The coffee is great. The party is super fun. The How I Built This Summit is one of the best investments you can make in your own professional and personal development. And most importantly, you will meet people who will become lifelong friends and contacts. So please join us in San Francisco, October 22nd to 23rd at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts to find out more and to get your tickets, including early bird pricing available for just a few more weeks. Go to summit.npr.org. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED
1: Talks. Um, TED. TED. Tet. Technology. Entertainment. Design.
0: Design. Is that really what it's TED for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. It's the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Hello, Leticia.
2: Hi, how are you?
0: First of all, is it Leticia? Um,
2: well, the only person that calls me Leticia is my mother when she's <laughs> hungry. So you can call me Letty. Letty. okay, great.
0: Okay. So Letty, can you introduce yourself to me, please?
2: Uh, my name is Letícia Gasca. I'm an entrepreneur and a researcher. I am co-founder of the movement F up Nights,
0: which we're going to have to bleep out, unfortunately, because we can't say that. I know. That.
2: Yeah, I know. We we never thought about the name like <laughs> enough.
0: No, that's fine. You you run a you run a an organization that that violates the FCC rules on decency, so we cannot <laughs> use the name of your organization on our show.
2: No problem. Okay, so b- before we get to
0: uh, to why you started F Up Nights, which, by the way, are these these events that you organize where people talk about their failures,
2: I guess we should go back a few years, right? Yes, when I was in college studying business, I met this group of indigenous women. They were doing beautiful embroidered handicrafts. Where, where were they living in in Mexico City? Uh, no, they were living in the Sierra Negra in Puebla, in a rural community in the center of Mexico. Hmm. And I asked them, like, why are you doing this? Is this a hobby? Is this, you know, for decoration? And to my surprise, they said that they were doing this handicrafts because once a month, this guy was coming to the community and buying their products. Hmm. And I asked, uh, like, how much is this guy paying you? And they said 30 pesos, which was, like, probably two and a half dollars at that time. For each, like, bag or, or, or purse. Exactly. They just spent basically a month working on each bag. Wow. And what do they look like? They were like white pieces of fabric with psychedelic images embroidered. (laughs) And I asked one of the women to make one for me. And, you know, I went back to Mexico City and that embroidered bag was a massive success. Like everyone wanted one, my friends, my family, my mother's friends. So, you know, I was still studying college. I was studying business. And in that moment, everything looked really clear for me. Like, (laughs) Yeah, I should have started a business to help these women. I mean, they already had a, an amazing product. They just needed some help with the commercial part of the business.
0: So, Letty recruited four of her classmates to launch this business. They would pay these women more for their bags and then sell them to boutiques in the city.
2: A win-win. Exactly. That was the idea. To create a business that not only had financial revenue, but also has social revenue.
0: Letty and her co-founders did everything by the book. They drew up a business plan, they found investors, and they followed all of Mexico's strict regulations.
2: And we thought that people from abroad would be crazy about these Mexican handicrafts that were so beautiful. Uh, But soon we realized that we didn't have selling skills at that moment. I mean, we were in our early 20s. (laughs) The bags started
0: piling up. They couldn't find buyers. So Letty's co-founders started looking for other work,
2: and I ended up doing everything on my own. Uh, and I think that I spent, like, six months in the Nile waiting for a miracle. But to be honest, that miracle never happened. <laughs> and I had to take the decision to close the business.
0: Letty had to break the news to her business partners.
2: That was hard.
0: She had to tell her investors, and that was hard,
2: but to be honest, the worst part was to go back to the indigenous community and tell the women that the business had failed. And it was our fault. I mean, they were doing everything in the best possible way. And I felt incredibly guilty, guy. You know, like, I started the business to have a positive impact in this community. And when we closed the business, I felt that that I had done exactly the opposite and that broke my heart. Uh, In fact, um, after we shut down the business, I took the decision not to talk about it. Hmm. (laughs) Uh, I felt so guilty that basically I hid my failure from my conversations and my resume. I did not know a single unsuccessful successful entrepreneur, and of course, I thought that I was the only loser in the world. Hmm. And as there was not a safe space to talk about business failure, I just decided not to talk about my failure for seven years. But then, one night in 2012... I was out with some friends, and we started talking about the real life of an entrepreneur. And one of my business partners said like, yeah, but failure is more common than success. And he started sharing a failure story. And then another of my friends share a business failure story. And suddenly we realized that we all have businesses that failed <laughs> in the past. Uh, and we have spent like three hours talking about our failures.
0: And at that moment you thought, You thought, wait a minute, this is the first time I'm talking about this.
2: Yeah, that was surprising for me. In fact, I have said that it was like an exorcism for me in the sense that Hmm. I have nothing to hide anymore, you know, like. We felt that something was going on in that conversation, and we needed to replicate that same conversation with more friends. So that same night, after sharing our failures, we planned a session to bring our friends together to share more failure stories.
0: Every single one of us, at some point, will fail. So why is it so hard to talk about? Because if we talk about it and really try to learn from it, Failure can feel less lonely, less final. We can think of it as a setback. And setbacks, well, they're just temporary. So today on the show, we're going to explore ideas around setbacks, how we can change what seems like a crushing defeat into a stepping stone. And for Leticia Gasca, that night changed her perspective and changed her life. Leticia Gasca picks up the story from the TED stage.
2: That night, I realized that A, I wasn't the only loser in the world, and B, we all have hidden failures. I realized that sharing your failures makes you stronger, not weaker. And being open to my vulnerability helped me connect with others in a deeper and more meaningful way and embrace life lessons I wouldn't have learned previously. As a consequence of this experience, we decided to create a platform of events to help others share their failure stories. And we called it F*** Up Nights. (laughs) It has been surprising to see that when an entrepreneur stands on a stage and shares a story of failure, she can actually enjoy that experience. It doesn't have to be a moment of shame and embarrassment, as it used to be in the past. It is an opportunity to share lessons learned and build empathy. We have also discovered that when the members of a team share their failures, magic happens. Bonds grow stronger and collaboration becomes easier.
0: It's almost like a cliche, but you, in some ways you have to acknowledge, reflect on, and talk about failure in order to learn from it, don't you?
2: Oh, totally. And I think that sharing these stories is something that really helped us learn from those experiences. Um, Another thing that I learned is that it's really hard to learn from your failures if you haven't lived all the grief related with failure. You know, like, it's like, I I, I think that somehow um, when a business fails, that is really similar to uh, losing someone you love. Yeah. Like you are gonna be in denial, you're gonna be angry, you're gonna be sad or depressed, and finally you're gonna accept what happened. Mm. And the only way to really learn from your failures is to analyze that failure from the perspective of acceptance, where you already know what really happened and you can even say like, oh, this was my fault. We never imagined that the movement would grow this big. We are in 80 countries now. In that moment, our only intention was to help our friends see that failure is something we must talk about. It is not a cause of humiliation, as it used to be in the past, or a cause of celebration, as some people say. In fact, I want to confess something. Every time I listen to Silicon Valley types or students bragging about failing fast and often like it's no big deal, I cringe (laughs) because I think that there is a dark side on the mantra, fail fast. Of course, failing fast is a great way to accelerate learning and avoid wasting time. But I fear that when we present rapid failure to entrepreneurs as their one and only option, We might be promoting laziness. We might be promoting that entrepreneurs give up too easily. I also fear that the culture of rapid failure could be minimizing the devastating consequences of the failure of a business. When my social enterprise died, the worst part was that I had to go back to the indigenous community and tell the women that the business had failed and it was my fault. For some people, this could be seen like a great learning opportunity for me. But the truth is that the closure of this business represented much more than that. It meant that the women would stop receiving an income that they really needed. For this reason, I want to propose something. I want to propose that we must put aside the idea that failing fast is always the best. And I want to propose a new mantra, fail mindfully.
0: So what, what does it look like to fail mindfully?
2: For me, failing mindfully means being aware of the impact of closing a business. That is why I am convinced that you can fail in a good way and in a bad way. I know this this can sound weird, but uh, for me, failing in a good way is to fail mindfully, to be really aware of what is happening and to try to minimize the negative consequences of the failure of that business. I am so sad to say that I spent seven years Mm. denying what had happened, not talking about it. And I think that my life could have been much happier (laughs) if I had like this courage or vulnerability or the safe space. What I know now and what I can share with other entrepreneurs is that if your business fails. Share that story. And also, the most important part is sharing those lessons, sharing those learnings with the world. That's Leticia
0: Gaska. She's co-founder of F-Up Nights. You can check out her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about setbacks. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who helped make this podcast possible. First, to WeTransfer. WeTransfer surveyed over 10,000 of their users in nearly 150 countries and found out that people get their biggest, most creative ideas when they step away from the screen. That's why everything WeTransfer designs makes the most of your time. Their tools are simple and beautiful ways to bring ideas to life and get you back to yours. Find out more at leave.bywetransfer.com. Thanks also to Luminary, the only place you can listen to the new podcast Fiasco from Leon Nafok, the co-creator of Slow Burn. In Season 1, Leon transports listeners into the contested 2000 presidential election and the legal battle that followed in Florida. Listen to Fiasco and other original podcasts only on Luminary. Visit Luminary.link slash radiohour for your first two months of Luminary's premium content free. Cancel anytime terms apply.
3: James Reeb was fatally beaten on Selma Street in 1965. His death would galvanize the nation. But in a courtroom nine months later, a not guilty verdict was handed down. In episode two, the trial and the birth of a conspiracy theory. From NPR, it's White Lies. Listen and subscribe now.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about setbacks. And one of the hardest things about setbacks is they stay with you. They're hard to shake. And
1: in some cases... They can even consume you. Right, so it's this ubiquitous phenomenon that everyone can probably relate to instantly, right? That you get negative feedback or criticism or somebody says something mean to you or you have a hard commute and it just sticks in your mind and yeah. you keep perseverating on it and obsessing about it. This is
0: Alison Ledgerwood. She's a psychology professor at UC Davis. And
1: part of the reason for that might be that Evolutionarily, this tendency for our minds to focus on negative information and perseverate on it could have been very adaptive in our ancestral past, right? It makes sense that when we're wandering around the ancestral plains or wherever we were, that once we think, oh, there might be a tiger over there, that possibility of a negative would attract our attention, and that we would keep thinking about it. You don't want to forget about the tiger because you're looking at the pretty hillside. But in the modern-day world, where we're generally safe from tigers, it would be nice to move on from negative information. And yet that tendency for our minds to look for it and hold on to it might still be there. How, how
0: How do our perceptions change based on whether we're presented with positive information versus negative information?
1: You know, there's a a wealth of research um, across the behavioral and social sciences suggesting that the way that we see the world and the way that we see the proverbial glass changes dramatically, kind of shockingly when you think about it, depending on how the world or the glass is described or framed. So if you focus people's attention on the half-full glass, they tend to like the glass a lot. They think it's a great glass. If you focus their attention on the half empty glass, they don't like it anymore. So in research and studies that have tested this idea, you know, it's not a glass, it's a a policy, a program, a person. I can tell you about the percentage of people whose jobs have been lost over the last five years or the percentage of people who have kept their jobs over the last five years. And even though I'm telling you mathematically identical information, you'll end up thinking that the policy, the economic prospects of the country whatever it is that you're thinking about is better when I've focused your attention on the part of the glass that's full Hmm. compared to when I've focused your attention on the part of the glass that's empty.
0: Here's more from Alison Ledgerwood
1: on the TED Stage. But we wondered what happens when you try to switch from thinking about it one way to thinking about it another way? Can people shift back and forth or do they get stuck in one way of thinking about it? Does one of these labels, in other words, tend to stick more in the mind? Well, to investigate this question, we conducted a simple experiment. We told participants in our experiment about a new surgical procedure, and we randomly assigned them to one of two conditions. For participants in the first condition, the first group, we described the surgical procedure in terms of gains. We said it had a 70% success rate. And for participants in the second group, we described the procedure in terms of losses. We said it had a 30% failure rate. So it's the exact same procedure. We're just focusing people's attention on the part of the glass that's full or the part of the glass that's empty. Perhaps unsurprisingly, people like the procedure when it's described as having a 70% success rate, and they don't like it when it's described as having a 30% failure rate. But then we added a twist. We told participants in the first group you know, you could think of this as a 30% failure rate, and now they don't like it anymore. They've changed their minds. And we told participants in the second group, you know, you could think of this as a 70% success rate, but unlike the first group, they stuck with their initial opinion. They seem to be stuck in the initial loss frame that they saw at the beginning of the study.
0: I mean, how how do you, when you think about training your brain to focus on positive thinking? What do you, like, how do you how do you start to do that?
1: I personally think of it as practice and as something that I do incrementally in little baby steps, right? And so I look for opportunities to do it in my daily life. Um, there's um, research by my colleague, Dr. Emmons at, at UC Davis, suggesting mm-hmm. that just spending a few minutes each day writing about things in your life that you're grateful or thankful for can boost people's happiness and well-being. So that's one way to do it just every morning for two minutes. These days, I do it in a more informal way. I try to spend time rehearsing and practicing and sharing the little positive pieces of my day. As opposed to, or maybe it's better to say in addition to, the negative pieces. So, for example, this morning, my toddler decided he's been, like, fiercely independent and he hasn't liked hugs for, I don't know, several months since he became a grown-up at the age of 18 months or whatever it was. And and today, he decided that bear hugs are really cool. So I got five bear hugs wow. in a row. Would you like a bear hug? Ah! It was pretty much the coolest thing ever yeah. in the moment. I felt great. How about a bear hug? Bear hug? No. And then about two minutes later, I also felt great. And about three minutes later, that positive feeling started to fade, sure. right? Because I was thinking about all the things I have to do today. And so I made myself go back and think about, wait, the bear hugs. How many were there? There were five, not one, not two. Five whole bear hugs in a row. I tried to do things right, to practice thinking about that 60 second interval in my day that was really great, because without practicing it and rehearsing it and sharing it with other people, it was going to be very fleeting and sort of unfairly fleeting compared to the other little things that are going to happen yeah. today. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about memory, right? Like. It seems like the way our brain is constructed, like the architecture of our brain, is such that when we think about our own personal narratives, whether it's over the course of a day, or a week, or a month, or years, that setbacks are just really prominent, that it's almost as if we remember those more than the triumphs. Is that true?
1: I think it probably is true to the extent that we encode the setback as a negative thing and the triumph as a positive thing, right? And that also suggests that way of thinking about it maybe suggests that if we can encode the setback as an opportunity instead of a failure, right, as the time we had the chance to do something differently, that we might be able to sort of change that imbalance in our memory,
0: I just want like a pill, like like or an right. electric current that can do that for me.
1: So you want me to zap the part of your brain? Yeah, that I want helps you to zap it. the positives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want you to zap
0: people, right?
1: <laughs> the thing is, I don't know if we actually want that. It sounds great. Yeah. And I kind of want the one that zaps me into sleeping. Yeah. But you don't want it all the time, right? You don't want your mind to always be. Like, it's useful. It is useful a lot of the time for our minds to focus on the negative information. You want your mind focused there so you can actually improve. So you you wouldn't want me to zap the part of your mind that does that because you would just be sort of stuck where you are now. You would never be able to learn from your mistakes. You would never be able to do better next time. And you also might not be able to deal with real negative events that require a lot of thinking. So yeah. if you go around with zapped brains all the time probably not actually what we want. What we want is the ability to focus on negatives and think about negatives when it's useful to us, and the ability to reframe the moment and focus on positives when that's the three, most one, useful thing. Two, three, oh, everybody. Ah.
0: Ah. That's Allison Ledgerwood. She's a psychology professor at UC Davis. You can hear her entire talk At TED.com. Everybody's
1: hugging. All right, good
0: night. On the show today, ideas about setbacks, failures, and how to learn from them. And when it comes to something like science, mistakes can actually be pretty crucial to the process. Oh, absolutely. This is astronomer Phil Plate.
3: You know, we get a, a biased impression of how science works from, uh, for example, the media, uh, like, like, you know, movies and TV shows where you get the lone genius idea, somebody scrawling away in their basement and then figuring out some huge discovery. It's, it's not like that at all, for one thing. You, you know, you, you go to school, you have mentors, there are colleagues that you work with and talk to, you try to figure things out. But it's also not just this flash of insight that suddenly reveals everything. You have this idea. You try to figure out if it's right or wrong. You make a lot of mistakes along the way while you're investigating it. And not just
0: mistakes, but sometimes complete dead ends. Here's more from Phil Plait on the TED stage.
3: Many years ago, I was working on Hubble Space Telescope, and a scientist I worked with came to me with some data. And he said, I think there may be a picture of a planet orbiting another star in this data. We had not had any pictures taken of of planets orbiting other stars yet. So if this were true, then this would be the first one, and we would be the ones who found it. That's a big deal. I was very excited, so I just dug right into this data. I spent a long time trying to figure out if this thing were a planet or not. The problem is, planets are faint and stars are bright, so trying to get the signal out of this data was like trying to hear a whisper in a heavy metal concert. It was really hard. I tried everything I could, but after a month of working on this, I came to a realization, couldn't do it. And I had to tell this other scientist, the data's too messy, we can't say whether this is a planet or not. Then, later on, we got follow-up observations with Hubble, and it showed that It wasn't a planet. It was a background star, a galaxy, something like that. Well, not to get too technical, but that sucked. (laughs) I was really unhappy about this. But that's part of it. You have to say, look, you know, we can't do this with the data we have. And then I had to face up to the fact that even the follow-up data showed we were wrong. Emotionally, I was pretty unhappy. But if a scientist is doing their job correctly, being wrong is not so bad, because that means there's still more stuff out there, more things to figure out. There are times when there's an idea, a fundamental idea in science, and over time, the cracks start to show in it. And they're always at the edges, you know, it's not not that big of a thing, but they start to pile up. And then it takes a long time for people to come along and say, we have an issue here, we need to figure out what's going on. Somebody comes along and drives a wedge right into those cracks and splits it right open. Uh, I don't know how much farther I can push this analogy, Uh, but that does (laughs) happen, and you have scientific revolutions. Quantum mechanics came about that way. Relativity came about that way. It's very difficult. It's generally a few things at first, and then they grow bigger and bigger. Typically, as we
0: get more and more data, we get better equipment to measure the universe. Yeah, so has there ever been like a massive mistake in astronomy, like like in a public way that, that you can think of? And, and then how did people react? Well, back uh,
3: in the 1990s, and even for decades before, one of the biggest questions we had in astronomy was, are there planets, like the planets in our solar system, orbiting other stars? And we figured there were other planets out there, but how to prove it, how to show it? So you can't just take a picture and show one. So what you have to do is you have to look for indirect effects as the planet is orbiting the star. And it's maybe tugging on the star. Maybe you can observe that tugging. And people have been trying it for years and nobody had been able to do it. Well, in 1991, Andrew Lynn and Matthew Bales reported that they had actually detected this around not just a star, but what's called a neutron star. That is an extremely dense very small object that is left over from a star that exploded as a supernova. Well, the beauty of neutron stars is that they spin at a very regular rate, and we can measure that spin very accurately. If there are planets orbiting an object like that, they will affect those measurements, and we can measure them. And so what Lynn and Bales announced in 1991 is that they had found this they had found that a neutron star had planets orbiting it and they were affecting the way the signals were coming from the star it was super exciting i mean this is it this is evidence of planets around another star well then it turned out they had made a mistake in all of the processing they had done to sort of get this signal out of their data they had basically uh, neglected to account for some of the earth's motion around the sun which affects their observations uh, and when they when they realized that and put it in, their planet went away. And that was, as a scientist myself, that is something that is hard to grasp, how that must feel when you yeah. realize that.
0: After you announced it, you announced it to everybody.
3: Yeah, that's tough. Yeah. So at another meeting some months later, Andrew Lin basically had to stand up and say... Yeah, about that result that we had, Uh, I apologize, we made a mistake, here's the mistake we made, here's how this all works out. When you process the data Hmm. correctly, that planet disappears. Now, you can imagine a politician doing this and being ostracized from their party, or somebody else admitting this mistake and their company collapses or something like that. But that's not science. What happened at that moment was at that meeting... Everybody started applauding. He got an ovation for saying this, for admitting his mistake and saying, you know, let's not make the same mistake again. He was supported by the scientists because they knew just how hard that admission was and how important it was that we understand what our data are actually telling us. So that to me says a lot about how scientists think and how science works. And there's an addendum to the story that I love as well. Right after Lynn was done, another astronomer, Alexander Volshan, stood up and said, "Uh, yeah, we actually observed this other pulsar. We processed our data correctly, including the part that the other guys missed. And uh, yeah, we found a planet. And in fact, we found two planets. And it turns out, (laughs) yeah, he was right. They found two planets orbiting this neutron star. A third one was found later. And those were, in fact the first planets, well, at least announced, that turned out to be real, that were confirmed. Uh, And so the story has a a truly happy ending. At that point, the floodgates were opened. Uh, In 1995, a planet was found around a star more like the sun, and then we found another and another. We kept getting better at it. We started finding them by the bucket load. We started finding thousands of them. We built observatories specifically designed to look for them. And now we know of thousands of them. We even know of planetary systems. This is incredible. Think about that. For all of human history, you could count all the known planets in the universe on two hands nine, eight, nine, eight, eight. (laughs) But now we know they're everywhere. Every star, for every star you see in the sky, there could be three, five, ten planets. We think that planets may outnumber stars in the galaxy. This is a profound statement. And it was made because of science. And it wasn't made just because of science and the observatories and the data. It was made because of the scientists who built the observatories, who took the data, who made the mistakes and admitted them, and then let other scientists build on their mistakes so that they could do what they do and figure out where our place is in the universe. That is how you find the truth. Science is at its
0: best when it dares to be human. Thank you. That's astronomer Phil Plait. He runs the blog Bad Astronomy. You can see all of his talks at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about setbacks. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, where physicians see more types of cancer in a day than many will treat in their whole career, providing unrivaled expertise in all cancers. MD Anderson's dedicated team of nearly 21,000 strong is solely focused on ending cancer and finding new ways to give more hope to patients and their families. More at Making Thanks also to Quip. Quip is designed to make brushing your teeth simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. Now the whole family can get refreshed with Quip. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. It now has a new kid's brush with the same built-in 2-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you to switch sides. It's got sensitive sonic vibrations for healthier gums and a multi-use cover for brushing on the go. Get your first refill pack for free at getquip.com slash build. Today, China is a world superpower. But just
4: over a century ago, the country was in complete turmoil.
1: This week on Throughline,
3: we find out how China's response to that turmoil created a nationalist movement that reshaped the country into what it is today.
0: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time to understand the present. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, ideas about setbacks and how expecting perfection can actually make it harder to learn from and then cope with failure
4: anybody who is driven to excel at anything whether it's sports or music or the arts or dance or you know fill in the blank that there is that quest for perfection and it's a bit of a of a double-edged sword because it's that quest that makes you amazing But it's also the quest to perfection that can
0: destroy you. This is Charlie Haversat, and she actually describes herself as a reformed perfectionist. Yeah, so how did you become that?
4: Well, I think it probably evolved over a couple of major
0: events in my life. Charlie Haversat picks up the story from the TED stage.
4: My conversion to a reformed perfectionist happened many years ago at Madison Square Garden. I was a professional athlete, and one year I qualified to run in the Indoor Track and Field Championships. The event was well-attended, it was televised, and as a long-distance runner, I was in awesome shape. It was the National Indoor Track Championships. Wow, so that's a big deal. It's a big deal, yeah. Um, I qualified for the 3,000 meters, there were, I think, seven or eight of us who qualified. Me and my parents had traveled to New York City, and um, they were way up in the stands. And, um, you know, my coach at the time obviously had spent an enormous amount of time preparing me to get ready to go. Yeah. And the race was really late. It was the last event, I think, of the evening before the relays, and I don't think I ran until 10 o'clock at night. (laughs) So I had all day to kind of, you know, work through the getting myself into the zone, so to speak.
0: And how did you do?
4: Yeah. It was pretty clear within the first minute that I was not only not going to win, but was going to struggle that evening. But um, as the race progressed, I wasn't having a great night, and I came in dead last on national television in front of a huge crowd.
0: Did you f- feel like a failure because you came in last?
4: I did. Yeah, I did feel like a failure.
0: So you you finish this race, you're feeling really bad. But then what happens? You start to reflect on it, and how does that change your perspective? What what happened? So
4: there's an expression in running that you're only as good as your last race. So the point is, is that you, if you've had a good race, you need to celebrate and move on to the recognition that you're going to need to run again soon and it might not go that well. And the, the flip side of that is when you don't run well, you just need to move on. You need to, you know, try to trust your training and just continue, you know, with the next steps. And um, it's really just about how do I personally deal with failure? Because... You know, it could be a failure. I can try to package it in terms of, you know, it was still a pretty good night and I got there, but it was still, I came in last and that wasn't my goal. And I needed to figure out how I was going to literally move past that. Yeah. You know, I beat myself up on my performance, but the reality is, is I had trained really hard. I had qualified to compete and I, you know, I finished the race and some days that's all you can ask from yourself. Now, although this is a personal story, it resonates beyond me. We don't have to look very far to recognize how obsessed our culture is with perfection. The term Photoshop is tweeted hundreds of times a day. We spend billions of dollars every year in search of flat abs and shiny white teeth. Soon after my race at the Garden, a researcher by the name of Bob Goldman did a survey of elite athletes. He asked them if they would be willing to take a drug that guaranteed them a gold medal, but that would kill them within five years. Over 50% of the athletes said yes. Goldman was shocked at those results. And to make sure that he had accurate data, he repeated the survey another five times over the next decade with exactly the same results. So I'm going to ask you a question. If we really think that perfection is an illusion, How do we explain why 50% of elite athletes are willing to die in exchange for that one perfect performance? Deep in our hearts, we all know that there's no such thing as perfection. Hmm. But it's almost as if we've come to expect that perfection is not only possible, but it's probable. That if we show up and do it, will eventually be perfect. If I post enough great pictures on social media, people will think I have a perfect life. If yeah. you know I Photoshop this picture, it just it's it's quite fascinating because I think if you got people, you know, one on one, they'd all know that it's not attainable.
0: In other words, like the world that, that we live in now, especially younger people with social media and this perception of a perfect life, which of course is an illusion, we know that. Right. It actually is making this Worse. Yep. Like because perfection or the illusion of perfection seems to be real, even though we know it's not, does it mean that we're more risk averse? We don't we don't even want to risk the possibility of failing?
4: Yeah. So I think that there's two parts is I think it kills people's desire to take calculated risks. And then I think it also creates a culture where we don't want to admit we failed. And that sometimes has some really no negative consequences. I was once at a soccer game that was typical of 10-year-olds. The kids were all over the field, and at any given point, you had no idea who had the ball. During halftime, an exasperated parent turned to me and said, these games are a waste of our time. It's not like any of these kids are ever going to go play professional sports. We've come to expect a World Cup soccer performance out of a game played by little kids. And we're sending our children the message that when they don't deliver that performance, they shouldn't bother to play at all. We can make a huge step forward by giving our kids a break. The pressures that our children feel from sports pale in comparison to the social and academic pressures they face as they grow up in a globally complex world. If we give our children permission to pursue good enough, we will grow adults who as the future CEOs and political leaders are willing to compromise.
0: So, I mean, this is the thing, right? Like on the one hand, you know, striving for perfection can drive people crazy and can lead you to be sort of destructive in some ways or to, you know, kind of neglect relationships and and other things in your life. But on the other hand, Striving for perfection can mean really working hard at something, really trying to to do it well, you know, whether it's running or whether it's your profession. I mean, even if the result isn't perfect, the striving for that perfection means that the result is probably going to be really good, right?
4: It is, and I would argue that the striving for it is what the goal is and not the perfection in itself. And that's Hmm. where, you know, I keep coming back to, was it good enough? Hmm. And I've had a lot of conversations about the term good enough because it implies that people settled or that they gave up. But I look at it as like a point in time. It's, you know, going back to my Madison Square Garden race. For that moment in my life, it was plenty good enough. And... It didn't mean that I wasn't striving. It didn't mean that I wasn't giving things, you know, 110%. It didn't mean any of that. So when I think about people who are striving for perfect, let's be happy about the process and not necessarily the outcome.
0: That's Charlie Haversat. She's a former pro athlete, now turned consultant. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Okay, so Charlie was just saying that like, perfectionism is holding us back, right? That, you know, that we could just do the best we can. That's good enough. But, uh, but you you think about this differently, right?
5: Well, I mean, certainly that's what I've heard. And I think that's probably the accepted truth. But uh, what I would argue is that uh, a good enough is actually
0: uh, a destructive way to think about things. This is John Bowers. He works for UPS training drivers. And John says that actually we should all be perfectionists. I think that, you know, if we continue
5: to just accept that we're trying our best or we're doing good enough as it is, we're not gonna grow or improve or advance our society. Uh, We didn't get to where we're at now by allowing things to stay status quo or saying that, you know, I tried my best and that's as much as I can do. We got to where we are now by saying, you know, although I did try my best, I didn't obtain my goal. Yeah. And so I'm going to try again. And now the next time I'm going to do better. So I think when I present this argument for perfectionism, that's really the key point, is that it's, uh, it's not intended to say that we won't fail. It's intended to say that we will fail. But it's how we address that failure and how we use it to continue on our path towards perfection in whatever
0: aspect of life we, we choose. Here's more from John Bowers on the TED stage.
5: I think that we should all seek perfection all the time. You see, I run a training facility where I'm responsible for the education of professional delivery drivers. And in my line of work, we have a unique understanding with the cost of failure, the cost of just 99 percent. Because in the world of professional driving, just 99 percent on the job means somebody dies. Look, 100 people die every day due to vehicular crashes. That's like the equivalent of four commercial airliners crashing every week yet we still can't convince ourselves to pay perfect attention behind the wheel. So I teach my drivers to value perfection. It's why I have them memorize our 131-word defensive driving program perfectly, and then I have them rewrite it. One wrong word, one misspelled word, one missing comma, it's a failed test. It's why I do uniform inspections daily. Undershirts are white or brown only, shoes are black or brown polished leather, and frankly don't come to my class wrinkled and expect me to let you stay. It's why I insist that my drivers are on time. Don't be late. Not to class, not to break, not to lunch. When you're supposed to be somewhere, be there. You see, I do this so that my students understand that when I'm training them to drive a car and I say, clear every intersection, they understand that I mean every traffic signal, every cross street, every side street, every parking lot, every dirt road, every crosswalk, every intersection without fail so I don't allow my drivers to lose focus, and I don't accept anything less than perfection out of them. And you know what? I'm tired of everybody else accepting 99 percent as good enough. I mean, being less than perfect has real consequences, doesn't it? If our doctors were only 99.9 percent correct, then every year, 4,453,000 prescriptions would be written incorrectly, and probably even scarier, 11 newborns would be given to the wrong parents every day in the United States. Trying
0: our best is not good enough. I mean, w- when you put it like, so so this whole episode is about setbacks and, you know, how you bounce back from setbacks. Um, and th- the thing is, is that there's a whole culture out there, especially in tech now, that says, you know, embrace failure. Like, you should walk through the door being like, I am going to fail today. <laughs> it's almost like that. Right. Right. Do you think that that is a... I don't know, do you think that's a positive trend? I think
5: that, you know, in many ways, that trend is not different than what I'm saying. You know, we, we absolutely will fail. And so I think in the tech industry, that's really the mantra is that, you know, you cannot be afraid to fail. Now, I think the difference and, and the dangerous point uh, of that mentality is when we say that, you know, failure is okay. And that's the end point, that we're just going to accept the fact that we couldn't do any better, that we, quote, tried our best and that's the end of the road or the avenue so to speak. So, in many ways that don't be afraid to fail, go for it is the same message that I'm presenting when I'm presenting the the idea of working towards perfectionism. It's just the outcome of that has to be when I do fail,
0: how do I react to that failure? I guess I guess what I'm, I'm wondering is like when you talk about perfection as like a north star or a goal or the thing we should strive for, you you implicitly accept it's actually impossible to be perfect all the time, but by striving for it, you are going to achieve something more meaningful for you and for the people that you serve. I, I guess is is that sort of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's a very
5: accurate way uh, to depict what I'm saying when I think that we I say that we should value perfectionism. It's you know understanding it's not an attainable goal, but Having that as the goal and and settling for nothing less is ultimately going to drive us closer to that perfection point. Knowing that we won't reach there, but if we continue to set that as a goal, we're going to continue to drive closer to it. Trying to be perfect is so stressful, right? And, you know, Oprah talked about it, universities study it. I bet your high school counselor even warned you about it. Stress is bad for us, isn't it? Well, maybe, But to say that seeking perfection is too stressful is like saying that exercise is too exhausting. In both cases, if you want the results, you got to endure the pain. So truthfully, saying that seeking perfection is too stressful is just an excuse to be lazy. But here's the really scary part. Today, doctors, therapists, and the nearly $10 billion-a-year self-help industry are all advocating against the idea of perfection. Under this guise that somehow not trying to be perfect will save your self-esteem and protect your ego. But see, it's not working, because the self-help industry today has a high recidivism rate because it's more focused on teaching you how to accept being a failure and lower your acceptance level than it is about pushing you to be perfect. See, these doctors, therapists and self-help gurus are all focused on a symptom and not the illness. The true illness in our society today is our unwillingness to confront failure. See, we're more comfortable resting on our efforts than we are with focusing on our results. Like like at Douglas Jerome High School in Ohio, where they named 30% of a graduating class valedictorian. I mean, come on, right? Somebody had the highest GPA. I guarantee you it wasn't a 72-way tie. (laughs) If we continue to cultivate this culture where nobody fails or nobody is told that they will fail, then nobody's going to reach their potential either. Failure and loss are necessary for success. It's the acceptance of failure that's not. Michelangelo is credited with saying that the greatest danger for most of us is not that our aim is too high and we miss it, but it's too low and we reach it. Failure should be a motivating force, not some type of pathetic excuse to give up. So I have an idea. Instead of defining perfectionism as a destructive intolerance for failure, why don't we try giving it a new definition? Why don't we try defining perfectionism as a willingness to do what is difficult to achieve what is right? You see, then we can agree that failure is a good thing in our quest for perfection. And when we seek perfection without fear of failure, just think about what we can accomplish. We could stop living in a world filled with the consequences of good enough.
0: Thank you. That's John Bowers. He runs training programs for UPS. You can find his full talk at TED.com.
2: Cause she knows life
5: has its little ups and
4: downs Like ponies on a merry-go-round And no one grabs a brass ring
5: every time But she don't mind I don't
0: mind Hey, thanks for listening to our show on Setbacks this week. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out the TED app or ted.com. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, Deba Motasham, James Delahousie, and J.C. Howard, with help from Daniel Shukin and Katie Monteleone. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR.